I was reading an article in The Guardian called Innocence Lost. And the tagline was, What did you do before the internet? I want to quote for you from the article. The headline was, First to log in, first to log out. People born in the mid to late 1970s are the last generation of humans on the planet to have grown up without the internet. Social scientists call them the last of the innocents. In his book, The End of Absence, Vancouver writer Michael Harris calls people who grew up prior to the popularization of digital culture, digital immigrants. They have lived both with and without the crowded connectivity of online life. Soon, no person on earth will remember what the world was like before the internet. There will be records, of course, stored in the intangibly limitless archive of the, of the cloud. But the actual lived experience of what it was like to think and feel and be human before the emergence of big data will be gone. The demise of the last of the innocents will mean the loss of an entire plane of human experience. The time when faced with long hours of nothing to do, our attention was allowed to wander. When there was time for reflection and introspection and devoting attention to people, who we were actually with, when idle summer nights could be spent in the yard catching fireflies and days would be spent lying in the grass looking for faces in the clouds. Um, I've given you the, in the article, I've given you the link to the, uh, to the whole article. As I read this, I remember thinking to myself, dear God, how true that is. I am so grateful that I am one of the innocents. I'm one of the last of the innocents. And I can still recall what it was like to lie in the sand of a riverbed on a dark night, looking up at the stars and wondering if what I was seeing was still there. I didn't even have a wristwatch because those were rare and in any case I was too poor to afford one. Such beautiful days. I recollect this when today, thanks to big data, my words are transmitted all over the world to places that I have never been to and probably never will. I have truly seen both worlds. So before I launch off into a nostalgia trip, let me uh, say a disclaimer. Not everything old is or was good. Not everything new is or was bad. But nostalgia feels so good. So enjoy and keep the salt handy. In the world before plastics, glasses were made of glass or copper or silver and water tasted better in them. Bottles were transparent glass or opaque ceramic, but both were breakable and did. Plates were ceramic, beautifully painted, also breakable and did. We also had steel plates, which didn't break, but were less classy. Buckets and tubs were unbreakable, made of copper or galvanized iron, and made a loud clang when you put them down and dropped the handle. So you were careful to put the handle down gently. Shopping bags were cloth, washed and reused until they wore out and then served as dish and polishing cloths until they vanished. Chairs were wooden or metal, some foldable, some not, all heavy and unstackable. So when plastic bottles, plates, cups, buckets and tubs and above all plastic bags came to be, we were thrilled out of our minds. Transparent like glass but doesn't break. Buckets and tubs lifting which didn't break your back. <laughs> Chairs that could be stacked and put away when you didn't need them. 
shopping bags that you could print your label on and which the customer could use for other things or simply throw away. No need to wash and dry and reuse. Truly a vision of convenience heaven. The rest, as we say, is history. Beds were wooden cots without springs with cotton mattresses on them. Every year, a man would come with an instrument that resembled a great bow and would be shut into a room with all the mattresses. He would unstitch one side, pull out the cotton, prong it with his bow until it was fluffy once again and then stuff it back into the mattress. When you entered the room to give the man a cup of tea, you had to look for him in the white cloud of cotton fluff and dust that he generated. The drumming sound of him working was like an out-of-tune sitar. What it did to his lungs, breathing in the cotton fluff, is not something that either he or we were conscious of. But thanks to springless beds and firm mattresses, we didn't have backaches. PUF polyurethane puff was unheard of. Polyurethane foam was unheard of. Foam was on soaps, not mattresses. And soaps were in bathrooms, not on TV. There was no TV. Our homes had resident wildlife, sparrows in the rafters making an infernal din every morning, belligerently defending their nesting sites from intruders. In Urdu, they are very aptly called Khana Chidiya. In our Dakni, we say Khanchuri, house bird. Their feathers, and at nesting time, all the grass and other tidbits they brought and then allowed to fall, they are incredibly messy nest builders meant that the house had to be swept twice or three times a day. Occasionally, a sparrow would get brained by a lazily rotating fan because they never seemed to realize that trying to perch on a moving fan was a bad idea. We would, we would pick up the dazed bird and revive it and put it on a windowsill so that it could fly away when it wished. It never occurred to us to de-sparrow the house. Sweeping was preferable to an aseptic house devoid of the chirping of the sparrow. Today, with all the concrete and glass and pesticide sprays in the fields, sparrows are gone. Municipal water came when it came, so everyone had storage tanks in the bathrooms. If those ran out, there was the Bihishti. Bihisht means Janna, means heaven, and Bihishti literally means man from heaven. He came with a leather sack slung over his shoulder and topped up the tank. More usually, he would water the garden and simply sprinkle water in the yard after sunset to cool the place down before our cots would be set out for us to sleep under the stars all through summer. Those who didn't have gardens had terraces or flat roofs used for the same purpose. How did it feel to lie in bed and look at the moon and stars through your mosquito net, secure in the thought that your house was not being burgled while you slept? I don't think I can even try to tell you to try that out today. The world before plastics was truly different in many ways. In that world, we had no computers, but we had time. We had no TV, but we had friends. We had no cell phones, but we spoke to people face to face. Conversation was an art taught and learned. Grunts didn't substitute for words. Language had value and was acquired and husbanded. New words tried out to see how they worked. Phrases repeated, shared and appreciated. Poetry was an actual form of self-expression that underlined the thought and the ability to quote the right couplet at the right time was a mark of a person's education. Conversation didn't simply revolve around politics or controversial matters, but we talked about thought leaders, exemplars from our past, 
and shared their thoughts and writings often verbatim, memorizing and quoting them being a sign of our own worth. An hour or two passed in this way, drinking tea and reciting poetry and marveling at the turn of phrase, expressing thoughts that touched the heart was something to be looked forward to and to be looked back on with great pleasure. We worked in the home or for our families for love or duty, but never for money. We were never offered money and would have considered it an insult to be offered payment for doing something for our family members, no matter how distant. The concept of paying children to work in the home was unheard of and considered deplorable. Money was called dirt on the hands. We dirtied our hands for the experience. The dirt came as a result. We didn't work for it. Mentioning what anything cost, what anybody earned, or what anyone had spent on a gift, meal, or any other form of hospitality was considered insulting and crass. Hospitality was a value, not an industry. The guest was someone you invited home to a meal. To take him to a restaurant was considered a lapse in the standard of hospitality. Even if you did it, it was done under duress, never as a choice. If some family member informed us that he or she was arriving from another city, it was the standard for us to meet them at the station and bring them home. I will never forget the sight of my great uncle Nawab Rukhnudir Ahmad standing on the platform on Chennai station with garlands when I arrived there in 1985 with my newly wedded wife Samina. He was staying with his daughter, Auntie Jahara, who we would be transiting with on our way to the tea gardens where I worked. Even though it was not his home that we were going to, Mamujan ordered us by personally receiving us at the station. But then, what am I saying? How can the daughter's home not be his home? Just as my aunt's home was my home. We learned from the actions of our elders. Tradition was to keep those memories alive, not only by talking about them, but by emulating the actions. For a family member to stay in a hotel instead of at home with us was an insult to our honor. The thought that elderly parents could be sent away to a home was unimaginable. Home was where we lived, not some place to shunt old inconvenient elders to, to be taken care of by strangers. They were our elders. We remembered what they had done for us when we were little. To do the same for them was not only our duty, but not even something we considered remarkable. In that world, we played real games on real earth, not virtual games on a gadget. We ran, sweated, yelled ourselves hoarse, tore our shirts, fell down, skinned our knees, got covered with dust, and when it was raining with mud, and considered all this as having had a whale of a time. In these games, we learned leadership, sharing, standing up for our friends, being done in by those we trusted and learned lessons from all of them. We learned to work as a team, strategize and see the result of that strategy. We stood up for each other, never reneged on our friends, even when we sometimes had to pay the price for that loyalty. We settled with our friend in private, but stood by his side in public. You didn't turn your back on your friends. It was as simple as that. It didn't matter to us what the color, religion or social status of the friend was. It didn't matter what car he had because we all rode bicycles. It didn't matter what brand of clothing he wore because we all had clothes custom tailored by the darzi in our mohalla, in our neighborhood. Bell bottoms were in fashion and we wore them. We were sober pointed shoes and brill cream in the hair. It didn't matter whether the friend was rich or poor because at the end of a good football game we all looked the same, the color of mud. It didn't matter if he was tall or short, handsome or ugly, what mattered was that he was my friend and that was all. 
in that world manners were everything manners meant that you showed respect for elders by greeting them first and standing up for them by anticipating their needs and running to fulfill them manners meant that if an elderly person had to carry a chair to a place where he or she wanted to sit it was an insult to you and your parents if you only stood by and watched manners meant that you spoke politely after asking permission and listened more than you spoke that is why you have been given two ears and one mouth we were told manners meant meant that when guests came home you served them not servants that you were in the middle of studying for your exams meant nothing guests were more important than exams when the guests left you went back to studying and still got straight A's no compromise on the results in that world we read books not occasionally but every day we had our favorite authors but we still had to read the classics mandatorily books were and still are our best friends opening doors into worlds unexplored we saw the scenes as we read about them laughed with the actors in those stories shared their joys and sorrows books opened for us doors into the hearts and lives of the writers and their times walking through which we discovered ourselves we read everything j r r tolkien ayn rand alvin toffler iqbal ghalib ibn al-qayyim louis lemor george orwell romila thapar james harriet Gerald Dull, John Steinbeck, Munshi Premchand, P.G. Woodhouse, Enid Blyton, Arthur Haley, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, of Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie, and many others all spoke to us. They influenced us and shaped our thoughts and values and taught us to question, critically analyze, and choose intelligently. Above all, they taught us that we were not unique or more special than anyone else. That others also cried tears and laughed their way through difficulties. and that in many cases our worst complaints can be the dreams of others we read and we learned to write we saw and we learned to show by drawing vividly colored pictures with words we dreamt and learned to deal with the reality that some dreams are simply that dreams but that even the most unrealizable of them opens vistas to that which might have been and leads to that which can become a reality we learned the value of philosophy and the solace it gives to a sore heart We learned to choose sometimes painfully but learned the lesson that we could and must make choices sitting on the fence invariably gives you a sore crotch we had never heard of recycling but we always wore clothes that had graced our elder siblings we used and reused them until the thing simply fell apart only then did we get anything new clothes covered our bodies not our egos manners not possessions were our statement not to say that we were always good mannered one of the things we prided ourselves on was the ability to describe another's ancestry in colorful terms for 10 minutes without repeating ourselves a skill that comes in handy when one needs to de-stress the secret is to do it alone facing a wall otherwise it increases stress levels instead of distressing of, of de-stressing since we didn't have a copy paste or autocorrect we learned spelling and wrote clearly in longhand the joy of the feel of a fountain pen gliding smoothly across the page those were the days before ball pens came into being you chose your pen depending on the width of the nib sat with an ink pot and medicine dropper filling the pen then screwed the top back on and carefully wiped the residual ink on your head and you were good to go we wrote letters not only to give news but to pour out our hearts our thoughts and feelings Sometimes you would get a letter with a circle around a suspicious stain labeled tear 
Then we waited days and sometimes weeks before we got a reply. We couldn't see the face, didn't get instant responses and had to struggle with translating emotion into words. So we learned to write properly. Our vocabulary was a lot more than ug, gr8, great, like, you know what I mean, lol. We didn't explore, we checked. We didn't reach out, we contacted. We didn't try to reach, we reached. We used shorthand to take notes and short forms only for telegrams. We learned to imagine, anticipate and adjust. We learned patience and we learned to write legibly because the addressee had to read what we wrote. We learned to write concisely because we didn't want the reader to get bored and throw the letter away. We learned to write correctly and grammatically because not to do so was a sign of ignorance and a poor education. It still is. In this world without instant coffee or tea bags, we learned the value of process. Warm the teapot before you pour in the hot water. And the reward of a properly done job. Drink a cup of freshly ground coffee and you will see what I mean. And the lesson that everyone had and the lesson that everything had a use. Used tea leaves, for example, are excellent mulch for roses. Drinking tea was also about demonstrating a brain. Hold the cup by its handle between three fingers and thumb, with the little finger pinky sticking out. And you don't slurp or blow on the tea to cool it. And God forbid, never slurp it out of the saucer. Not to say that doesn't have its own pleasure, but you didn't you just didn't do it. Not that everything in this plasticless world was hunky-dory. We had power cuts, or to put it more correctly, we were delightfully surprised when we had power. But we had candles and lamps. We had no cooking gas, and so our rotis came with a wood-smoked flavor. Corn was always on the cob, roasted on live coals, rubbed with half a lemon, dipped in salt and eaten hot. What all this cooking on wood did to the forests is another story. We had no refrigerator, so we gave away all leftovers and always ate fresh. Milk would be stored overnight in what was called a havadan, literally air container, covered with a wooden frame and mesh sides. If it still turned, we converted it either into a sweet or into ghee. As I said, we recycled out of necessity and it was very enjoyable. My generation is a generation that straddles time and change. We have seen more fundamental change than both our predecessors and successors, and we love it. A friend said to me, I am with you, but how do we get this back? Here's my solution. Get out into the open. Go sit on the grass. Don't worry about your clothes. Get them dirty. Sit under a tree in silence and listen to the tree. I mean that seriously. Listen to the tree. Trees, trees talk to those who listen to them. Sometimes it sounds like the rustling of leaves in the breeze. Sometimes it sounds like birds talking to each other. Sometimes when the breeze turns into a wind, it sounds like a tired man straightening his back. Sometimes you can hear what sounds like raindrops, but there is no rain. That is the water that the tree sends back to earth from transpiration. If you are in a forest, you will hear it sometimes making you wonder if it's raining. It is and it isn't. The key to all this is to be totally silent. Silent as in absence of sound. Silence as in absence of movement. Sit still, breathe gently and take deep breaths. Remember that you are sitting under an oxygen generation plant. Take the benefit of that. Let the buzzing in your ears subside. That is the noise of the city that came with you into the forest. It will go if you let it go. 
Then you will start hearing the forest and its own sounds, which are not the discordant, disruptive, distressing noise of man-made things and lifestyles. These are the sounds of nature before man came on the scene and which will remain after the earth has rid itself of yet another pestilence. These sounds are soothing, calm, peaceful, relaxing and eternal. Be prepared to feel like a chain smoker on a 16-hour long-haul non-smoking flight. That will give you an indication of what you have done to yourself. Essentially, it will tell you how sick you are. I mean the stress you will feel by your self-imposed ban on using your mobile phone. The best thing is to leave it in your car or home. Don't bring it with you. Feel the lack of it. You need to know what you have done to yourself so that hopefully you will be inspired to free yourself from your voluntary enslavement. Walk in the rain. Don't carry an umbrella or even a hat. Feel the water on your face and head trickling down your back. It tickles. If the rain is light, it will be very pleasant. If it is heavy, you will get soaked and it will feel even nicer. Don't worry, you are not made of salt. You won't dissolve and flow away. I am saying this to people living in the tropics. Those living in Europe and North America must not do this because thanks to colder climates, you may catch a cold or worse. But even there, in summer, try it. All power to you. I hope you don't live in a place where the rain is acid. How tragic that we have polluted our world so badly that we must fear even the rain. Once you are wet enough, find a nice tree with thick foliage and shelter under it. Just sit quietly and listen. There is nothing more relaxing than the sound of rain on the leaves overhead and in the surrounding forest. Some rain will drip on you, but that doesn't matter because you are wet already. That is why I told you to walk in the rain first. Then go under a tree. Otherwise, you will spend your energy trying to stay dry instead of enjoying the rain. Finally, I can tell you a lot more, but let us leave it at this. When you have done this and start enjoying it, then tell me, and I will tell you what the next step of the detox process is. And remember, it all starts with your phone, or more correctly, without it.